Hello and welcome to African Joe Paddy. My name is Ife and I'm recording from Creole in Scotland. Today, we're going to be talking about socioeconomic development and peace and conflict resolution in Africa. And we have an amazing researcher, scholar, and someone really that understands the subject to speak to us about this subject. Teniola Tayo is a researcher with the Lake Chad Basin Program at the Institute for Security Studies in Dakar, Senegal. Her research interests bother around the security, trade, and development nexus. She has previously worked as a consultant with the West African Think Tank, Think Tank, WATI, Nestia Advisory, the Inter-American Development Bank, and the United Nations Development Program. She has also worked as a senior legislative aide with the Nigerian Senate. She has a master's degree in development management from the London School of Economics, LLC, and a bachelor's degree from the University of Ghana. She is a Chevening Scholar, a member of Institute for French Research in Africa, IFRA Nigeria, and a fellow with the LSE Program for African Leadership. I mean, I hope you agree with me that this is a perfect person to discuss this topic with us. You're welcome, Teniola. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being here. And I'd like to go straight to the point, given that you're the person with the expertise on this subject, to ask you, can you tell us, please, what is the role, or should I say, how can the socioeconomic development of the African continent improve peace and bring about conflict resolution on the continent? Thank you. And um, yeah, so the thing is, uh, you know, for many conflicts that occur around the world, right? So not even just in Africa, they are often about competition for resources. So conflicts usually emerge when there is a form of scarcity or the other. So you think about some parts of Africa, you have a conflict between the herders and the pastoralists. So you have people that have cattle that are moving around, um, you know, moving around spaces to for grazing. And then you have perhaps farmers that have also set up farms in particular areas. And then that's competition for the resource, the resource being land in that case, sometimes leads to conflict. And this manifests itself in many different, many different zones, many different areas, many different sectors. The, the bottom line there is that the, the, the scarcity of resources, you know, leads to conflict and then socioeconomic development can help improve the scarcity of resources. So when we talk about resources, resources are linked back to livelihoods because why is a farmer using the land for a farm? Because he needs to feed himself or herself and then um, they need to feed their family. Why does a herder want their cattle to move across certain lands? Because that is their job. I mean, often herders don't own the cattle that they graze, but then they earn money by grazing those cattle. So at the core you know, of that also is livelihoods. You know, there's a reality that every single human being on earth has to eat one way or the other. And we all do many different things in order to eat. So for example, I work as a researcher so that I can eat, so I can put food on my table. A farmer works as a farmer so that he can eat and put food on his or her table and on the tables of their families. Socioeconomic development helps or help make, make sure that everyone 
um, in the African continent, I mean, if you're talking about Africa now, can find food to eat in a way that does not lead to conflict. So I'll use the, I mean, I can use um, the lecture business as a, as a case study. So especially the Boko Haram conflict, right? So one of the, the Boko Haram conflict was caused by many different things. But one of the factors there was that there was very high, there was unemployment in that space. So when you had the, the, the I mean, the Boko Haram actors that brought ideology to some people. So the radical Islamic ideology, that's extremist Islamic ideology. The only reason why they were able to get as far as they did was that they packaged it as a livelihoods um, option. So they told people that they could, I mean, they gave people opportunities to earn money or money to start a business, just money to do things, money to get married, money to start a family. So they packaged their ideology in the livelihoods, um, in a livelihoods jacket. And that was what made it more palatable to some, some particular people. And that goes back to socioeconomic development. Because if you had a minimum level of socioeconomic development in those spaces where everyone had at least a um, basic access to public services. They had at least, you know, the opportunity to get jobs. So now we're not even saying that the government should be sharing money to people, but at least everyone that wanted a job could get a job, a job that could, you know, take care of themselves, take care of their families. Then um, the extremists might not have been as successful as they were in spreading their ideology. So socioeconomic development really is sort of like at the heart of things, you know, at, at the heart of many conflicts um, in, in Africa, because it's when you take out some of the basic needs of people that they now have to fight for it. And that's when they're even, it's easier for other people to co-opt them. You know, why do we have people that engage in, um, political thuggery in, in, in Nigeria, for example. In Nigeria now, we're entering election season. So why do you have young people that are willing to take money from politicians so they can go and disrupt um, elections and, and do whatever? It's because, again, every human being has to eat. So we can define eat in many different ways. Eating obviously has different scales because there is literally eating in terms of just having enough food um on your table but then you know you can also look at eating as and just having you know a minimum standard of life but also some people also bring it up there again eating means that or being able to take your children to minimum quality of schools according to your own taste and preferences so yeah i'd say that in in some research economic development is um responsible for some of the drivers of conflict. So addressing the drivers of conflict to ensure that they don't even emerge in the first place, but yeah. also even addressing them after conflict has emerged in some spaces. I mean, thank you so much, not only for the way you've explained this, but as also in the way you've sort of made connection between conflict over scarcity and how insurgency group are actually taking advantage of, you could say, the gap that's been left by the state in terms of their inability to step in, to take advantage of that, to then recruit people into their um, insurgency group. The question then that should follow, and I'd like to ask this question is, does it then mean that trying to solve this problem through armament alone, you know, through um, law enforcement or through military means alone is futile, given that there is a link between, based on the examples you've given, between socioeconomic deprivation and the conflicts in the first place. Absolutely. And that's a, I mean, that's a very key question. 
it's not that it's futile, but then, you know, militarization on its own does not solve many conflicts around the world. So when you think about a conflict and you think about what sustains a conflict, so you think about people um, unleashing violence on a particular group of people. Ordinarily, if you have maybe 10 people that are unleashing violence on a group of maybe 100 people, then you carry out military action. If you are able to perhaps kill or capture the 10 of them, then you would feel that the conflict should be able to end, isn't it? But yeah. in the, I mean, in the way that these things usually go, let's say you're able to kill or capture three to four of them, uh-huh. but because there are still many people that fit the same profile, many people that don't have a lot of things to do with their lives, they don't have any way to earn a living, they don't have many options in term, in t- options in terms of trying to put food on their table. It means that even the, the six or seven that are left can very easily go and recruit more because the, the, the pool is, is, is limitless, it's, it's unending. They can uh-huh. go and recruit more people that you know might as well join them in order to, to eat, like, like we're saying. And then you still have 10. They can even recruit, they can even become bigger, they can even now become 15. So you're making gains on one side, but then at the same time, it feels like it takes some steps forward and then many steps backwards because the problem keeps on getting bigger because there's an underlying issue there that continues to exist and has not been addressed. So military action is very important, but then military action on its own cannot resolve conflict. You need to do both at the same time. You need to carry out military action, but also be doing um, whatever, what you can do to address some of the underlying causes of of conflict. And in a simple, I mean, in simple terms, it's really about providing jobs to people that need them, because for many people, if they're given the, the choice, between a good enough job. So not just a job, but a good enough yeah. job that at least can provide the minimum and then picking up a gun. Some people would choose to, 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 to take that job. Yeah, okay. Thank you so much for, for making that clear. And it's just interesting to see that as it is on land, so it is at sea in terms of, you know, how deprivation in coastal communities is driving people to illicit activities wherein criminal network are taking advantage of their knowledge of the sea to sort of recruit them to engage in these activities. Because as you noted with the example from the Lake Chad Basin, people are merely looking for um, an opportunity to feed themselves and their families and they will take that opportunity wherever it arises, which is why we're seeing a proliferation of conflict in that area. And so I know I'll get to the point where I'd like to ask you some of the examples of where, if we have any on the continent or elsewhere, whereby socioeconomic development have actually sustained peace and resulted in conflict resolution. But for now, I'd like to ask, how did we get here? I mean, since resource scarcity and search for livelihood is driving people to conflict and in extreme cases into joining extremist group, what is it that led us here? Is it that the government is not doing what they should have or are just failing in their duties? How did we get here? So we got here because of neglects. Um, if we use the same Lichad Basin, so Lichad Basin is a region that borders four countries in West and Central Africa, so which is um, Chad, uh, Cameroon, Niger, and Nigeria. And the Lichad Basin is seen as a sort of like a, as a macro region because the Boko Haram conflict that started in Nigeria eventually became a problem in the four countries. So now it's a it's a crisis that affects the I mean the Nigeria, Chad, Niger, and Cameroon. 
Um, yeah, if we use that as a case study, all of the areas there that are the most affected by Boko Haram, they were all a little bit far from the, the, the center of those countries. So they were somewhat neglected as far as development goes compared to um, the city centers or the city regions. So for example, you have uh, in Nigeria, you have Abuja and Lagos as the centers, you have some other big cities, Kano, but then you now have parts of the Northeast that were a bit farther out. And because they were farther out, not as much attention was being paid on, uh, you know, on, on those um, communities. Uh-huh. I mean, there's some of them that they've never even seen public officials, you know, I mean, they only see public officials, like we all say, during elections, because they're yeah. just you know, living their own lives. So uh-huh. those communities were neglected. There was not a lot of, um, they were not, even the way that some of the rest of us were experiencing our states, even though we were already complaining, they didn't even have the privilege of that minimum um minimum uh, experience of the state in terms of healthcare or in terms of schooling or anything like that. So yeah. that neglect um, created a fertile zone or a fertile region for that crisis to emerge and to be sustained because one, a conflict can start, but usually, I mean, if, if there's not enough or material out there now, because if we visualize a conflict like a fire, right? A fire can start anywhere. Maybe there's this spark somewhere and then a fire starts. But if there's not enough, you know, things there for the fire to burn, there's not enough oxygen coming in, then the fire is going to is going to um quench, it's gonna um get put out. But if there's kindling, there's air blowing on the fire, there's one um, you know, there's paper around, then you know that the fire will keep on going. So that was also um key to that because of the conditions in those areas, the conflict was sustained and now it's it's going into um a monstrosity that is now very difficult to to contain. And in context of even Nigeria, again, we, we seen that even now trying to focus all of our attention on one conflict in the northeast, let's because we had similar dynamics or similar um, conditions in other parts of the North, but they were also being neglected and a different conflict has emerged in the form of banditry that is now also even bigger than the original um, violent extremism and is now even proving very difficult to contain. So yes, I'd say that we got here because of neglect, because uh, the development priorities were not always in the right in the right place. Also because to an extent, we weren't doing the right things as economies, because one of the reasons why resources are scarce and even in trying to spread out development across um, across African countries. It's not just because of corruption. Yes, corruption reduces the resources, but also because our economies are not even doing as well as they should. It means that we don't even have enough, really. Like, even if there was no corruption, we don't even really have enough to take care of everybody in the ways that we're supposed to. People always give examples that sometimes the entire budget for one African country is equal to the budget for one agency, you know, just one government agency in the U.S., So there's a serious uh, imbalance. So I'd say that that's how we got to we got to this position. Wow. Um, thank you so much for really extensive response. And I guess it is saddening to see that although you gave examples and helped us understand by giving by focusing on Nigeria, the narrative seems to be similar anywhere else on the African continent where we have conflict or where conflict is proliferating from Nigeria to Cameroon, to Niger, to Chad, as you focused on the Chad Basin, but even beyond that, going to other areas like Ethiopia, like Sudan and and other countries where we're unfortunately seeing conflict uh, that that is on the rise. And I wanna now look at, you know, what can we do differently? We recognize that 
there are challenges. The government have failed in certain areas. But in the spirit of seeking solutions, I wonder if you can help us understand what we can do differently, what must be done now to sort of reverse the trend that we're seeing. I think one of the things that we need to do as Africans is that we need to realize that every single African life matters. So even as African governments, government policy often focuses too much on the big cities, on the cities with say like a more educated population, with a more uh, skilled population, with a population that is more exposed, often because those populations are able to hold them more accountable. So they are the ones that uh, maybe are more, they are the ones that are in the media, they are the ones that are on social media, but then they neglect the other populations, you know, yeah. so there, you know, these people that um, often do not have voices, uh, you know, sometimes when we talk about African youth, African youth, yeah. when people say African youth, they usually have a particular image in their mind. They're thinking about someone, you know, on social media that has their own small NGO doing something for the environment, doing this and doing that. And I always try to remind people that if the African youth is every single African that falls within a particular age group. So don't don't um, romanticize the image of the African youth. Every single person that falls within the, I mean, the age group of 18 to 35, whether they are holding a gun or they're holding a mic is an African young person. So if you're trying to bring solutions for the African youth, it has to cover everybody. Yeah. You know, it has to cover every single demographic. So I think one of the things that we need to do really as governments and even as people is just to recognize the different needs that our populations have on different levels. So if you're trying to bring jobs to an African country, you know, a random African country, you can't just be focusing on attracting people like Google or Facebook, you know, to come and bring jobs to your country because the people that can get hired by Google and Facebook are the you know, they, they can be even des described as elites one way or the other because they have very good education, you know. I mean, to be able to qualify for those kinds of service jobs, you know, it's, it's on a particular level. If you focus on just things like that, you know, trying to establish tech hubs, trying to do, you know, some of these things everyone is now focused on, you are leaving out a large segment of your population that are, have either zero skills or no skills. I mean, yeah. they have either zero skills or little skills, right? And um, research shows that those people can perform better maybe in factory work as a start because to train someone to work in a factory is easier and faster than training someone to go and work at Google. So when you're trying to design policies or interventions for, I mean, development for countries, it has to really, you know, address, you know, every single you know, um, aspects. So every single demographic, the, the low skilled, the unskilled, the young people, the disabled people, women, it has to, you know, address everyone. And then it also has to cut across regions and not these haphazard developments that most of us African countries are doing where there's a focus on the big cities. Those ones are beautiful. Those ones have, you know, some of the nice things where everywhere else is lagging behind and then conflict starts to erupt. And then it's like, oh, what is going on? So, I mean, that's one, one key thing. I, I, generally speaking, as far as socioeconomic development goes, we need more capital coming into the continent. So we need more, more funds. We need more investments. So governments yeah. need to do more work to attract those funds. And again, even when they're trying to attract those investments, they need to figure out where 
which places are even more lacking. You know, do not only take investors to the fine places. If you need an investor to set up a factory, they they cannot they can't set up a factory in using the Nigerian example now in Lagos uh-huh. because Lagos people are more of the Google and Facebook kind of you know um, people right so you you make sure that you're talking to Google and you're also talking to someone that can come and set up maybe an agri processing factory because you know that for example the north produces a lot of food in terms of farming so uh, factories that you know process agricultural products into um, agri processed goods so for example taking the the raw milk and changing it to yogurt or changing it to other milk products, taking the pepper that they're producing, changing it to different pepper products in a way that it can be exported. Just make yeah. sure that you are covering everybody, you know, one way or the other, just addressing the inequalities that are really embedded in our societies. And inequalities can be termed, like you said, as relative deprivation and relative deprivation leads to conflict. So for me, that's one of the key things, you know, just really um, our policymakers opening their eyes to the um, inequalities that are existing in our societies and making sure that all of the different policies, investments, interventions that they're developing and implementing are reaching everyone and reaching everyone at the point of their needs. Don't take Google to the North and force Northerners to learn how to join Google. No, meet them where they are and make sure that you're carrying everyone along so that no one is left behind. Wow, this is absolutely, I mean, you have literally not only summarized what needs to happen, but as I'm listening to you and as someone that is more familiar with what's happening when it comes to the maritime aspect of some of the issues you're discussing, you find that there is synergy in some of these solutions. And, you know, to think that you sort of concluded your your recommendations by reiterating this UN um, UN usual saying, no human left behind, or should I say nobody should be left behind, is something that is quite powerful, especially when we see the role that the African Union have noted in terms of the role that, you know, the resources on the African continent can play in peace and conflict resolution and the sustainable development of the African people. The question then is how can we ensure that our government are bringing the right people to do the right job? Your recommendation is just, I mean, I actually do not have anything to add rather than than reflect as you were responding. The solution is literally there, staring us on the face. So why are we not doing something about it? I wonder if you have any idea as to why, because... I'm sure, I mean, you work with the ISS, for example, and you guys have been writing a lot and you've also been advising the government. So why aren't they taking heed? What exactly is the reason? Do you know? Do you have answers? Uh, Yes. So, I mean, one of the reasons, again, is is resource scarcity. Okay. So... uh, you know, so for example, I always give, I mean, this is an example that I like to give. When we talk about out of school children and how many children are out of school and just the, the millions and, you know, it's just a very disheartening thing because you see a direct pipeline between, I mean, from a child that is out of school to mm-hmm. a young person that is probably going to become, um, I mean, a, 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 you know, potentially a criminal because they'll be, it will be easy for someone to exploit them in, in that way. But then if now you want to say that every single child that is out of school in a country like Nigeria, and it's the case for many other African countries, should go back into school. The question is, do we have the schools to accommodate 
all of them do we have the teachers to teach all of them like if 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 there was if there was something that we could do now maybe we someone granted us a wish a genie granted us a wish and said tomorrow every single out of school child is going to be in school do we even have the space for them you know so resource scarcity is still quite um a problem in the african context and it's now even worsened by the fact that all those uh, resources are a little bit scarce people are still still in <laughs> people yeah. are taking a lot more than their share you know <laughs> as far as our public officials go so this is one of the problems and and you know so even in in light of that right so you already have resources that are scarce already not enough to take care of um, everyone in the ways that it's supposed to and then you now have people that are still only interested in their own selves and then taking more than their share of the a lot more than their share of those resources so what it means is that they don't have the political will to even do some of the things that they need to do because now that's you know them them taking care of so them pro- providing enough schools is now in conflict with their own personal interest so it's yeah. like they're competing their personal interests are competing with the public interest you know in 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 that sense and that's where you now have a lack of political will because you know they are for their own in their own logic and their own rationalization why should they care about a child somewhere in zamfara state versus um you know their own pockets and the house that they want to buy or in london so there's competition between um their personal interests and their political interests and i guess that goes back to the nature of our politics and uh, the kinds of leaders that we often find ourselves we often find ourselves with Thank you so much. Um, and I think that's actually a very good way to round off. We have heard about the challenges. We have heard about the impact. We have heard about the recommendations on what needs to be done differently. And we've also heard about some of the limitations, you know, the fact, that's why the fact that the government or the people in, in, in authority have some of the answers, but they're not necessarily doing anything about it because of some of the issues you've highlighted scarcity of resources. Um, corruption sadly remains a very big issue as people continue to siphon money that is meant to serve the people and, and take it abroad and just sheer greed. And it's 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 alarming, especially as the election is the sort of forthcoming, not just for Nigeria, but other countries. You know, they're just amassing as much money as they can to be able to run for government. So with that in mind, and given the role that election can play in ensuring that we elect the right people to take us to the next level, I wonder if you have any advice for the African youths that are listening right now. What advice do you have for them? I'd say that they should never give up. You know, sometimes you look around you and things look very bleak, but then, you know, we just have to find a way to keep moving. And I'd say that it never helps to focus on just the problems without trying to figure out how to solve the problems. You can spend your entire life trying to solve a problem and you may never solve it. But some of the progress that you make can actually help someone that comes after you to solve the problem. So I just want to encourage, you know, African youth that we should, you know, never give up, you know, keep on doing what you're doing in whatever space or corner you are, whether you're in Tanzania or you're in Zimbabwe or you're in, you know, Kenya or you're in Algeria, Morocco, Egypt, you know, Ghana, Togo, wherever you find yourself do whatever you can do keep doing whatever you can do for yourself for your family for your society 
and just know that it is going to matter because it's this combined efforts that will make sure that eventually, even if it's not in our generation, I mean, we hope it's going to be in our generation, but eventually our children will not be complaining about the same things that we are complaining about. Never stop, never give up, and let's just keep doing what we can do. Thank you so much. And on that note, I want to thank you for giving us your time. I want to thank you for speaking so eloquently and clearly. And really, thank you so much for your time again. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can join us again soon.